is a great Sunday. I'm excited to be here. You're joining us on, as you just heard, the first week of a brand new series that we are starting today called Clarity. And this is an important series for us as a church. I believe God's going to do some big things through this series as we attempt to try and answer some of the most basic questions for what we believe and why we do some of the things that we do. Because how many of you know that there's a lot of things in life that are really, really confusing, right? I hate confusing things. Like I, I really don't like it when I go to buy some furniture from Ikea or Walmart and I bring it home and I open the box and there's like 15 million pieces in there. And you find the instruction manual and in it, it says that all of the pieces are labeled, but then you're looking at all the pieces and there's not stickers on everything to tell you what piece this is supposed to be. And so you got a process of elimination. you got to try and compare your pieces with the instruction manual to figure out what everything is. And then you've got, you know, this bag of hardware that they give you with 15, 15 different sizes of screws that you're supposed to, again, compare to the instruction manual and figure out which ones are which and, and, and what you use to attach these pieces together. And it's just really, really confusing. I just had to go through this a couple months ago when we bought beds for our boys from Big Lots. Um, and I opened it up and it was, it was a monstrosity. It took me three hours per bed uh, to put these things together. And I was so irritated and frustrated by the time I was done with a blister on my, uh, on my palm from having to screw in all of those screws into the thing. And it's just, it's just frustrating when things aren't clear, when there's not clarity about the instructions, right? Because a lot of them don't even have words anymore. They just give you pictures, right? And you're just supposed to try to orient the, the picture on, on the instruction manual and you lay the pieces out the same way that they're on the manual to make sure that these are going together right. Uh, which reminds me, speaking of, of manuals, of uh, something that my son has really gotten into lately, which is Legos. And uh, he really enjoys putting these things together and he's actually gotten really good at doing it by himself. And the Lego brand is actually pretty decent at their instructions as they depict, you know, how to put all these pieces together. You open the box and you've got all these little tiny pieces that parents all know you wind up stepping on at two o'clock in the morning as you're going to the bathroom and uh, trying not to curse and wake up your family. Uh, but that's a different story. And so Lego does a pretty good job of like telling you, okay, you take this piece, you got to find that piece and connect it to this piece and it goes together like this. But, you know, Legos, I don't know if you realize this, parents do, I'm sure, are really expensive. It is crazy how expensive they are. Uh, my, my son wanted some for Christmas last year. He wanted like the big set. He wanted to really challenge himself. And it's like $150 for the larger Lego sets where you want to like build a starship or something from Star Wars. And I'm like, I ain't spending $150 on Legos for you. So my wife found this awesome um, knockoff brand called Block Tech. And it's like a quarter of the price of Legos. And at first I thought it was a great idea because I was able to get him a 1500 piece castle set for Christmas that he would be able to have a blast with. But Block Tech's engineers didn't do nearly as good of a job as the Lego engineers when it came to laying out the instruction manual for how to put the thing together. There was not as much clarity on figuring out how to assemble this thing. And I think a lot of times, you know, when it comes to our faith, 
we feel like we've just we've got this assortment of random pieces and we're not really quite sure how they all go together. How am I supposed to make sense of this? There's no clarity about what it means to be a Christian. And so that's what we want to do with this series today, you know, because I want to give clarity around the things that we do as Christians and what we believe as Christians, because our faith can feel confusing at times. And I really, really believe that Christianity doesn't have to be confusing. Christians have made it confusing by our lack of understanding. And so I want to bring clarity today to that. I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm not going to um, simplify or oversimplify some of the more complicated issues of our faith, but I want to try to explain some things in a way that will make it hopefully easier for you to understand. And so today I want to kick this off, kick the series off in part one this week by talking about and teaching about salvation. I want to teach you about salvation today because the, t- the statistics are astounding when it comes to the percentage of people who claim to be Christian that can't explain what salvation is. And I'm going to actually just get this out of the way because I feel like there's a barrier between me and you. And I want to see your smiling faces today. So since last June as a church, you've heard us share this many times, but we have seen 114 people make a decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ to receive salvation or rededicate their lives to him. And I don't know about you, but that excites me because that's what we're all about as a church. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so as a church, we celebrate every single one of those 114 lives that were changed because behind every single number is a name. Behind every name is a story and every single story matters to God. And so we celebrate every single one of those lives. But maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't, uh, but I've heard the question so many times, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because different churches explain it differently, different denominations believe and teach different things. Many of you may have grown up Roman Catholic, that's a very large percentage of our population in this city is Roman Catholic, and maybe you grew up believing a certain way or a certain thing when it comes to salvation and what that means based on how you were taught. Maybe you have a Pentecostal background. Maybe you have no church background at all. But regardless of your background, most people would say that if there's a heaven, I want to go there. In fact, I looked it up this week, 72% of Americans believe that there's a heaven. But ironically enough, only 58% believe that there's a hell. But regardless of church background, if if there's a heaven and 72% of Americans believe that there is, how do we get there? How do we get there? And so I'm going to attempt to use the Bible today to answer some of the most commonly asked questions when it pertains to salvation. And I'm using the Bible because we believe at this church that this is the inspired and infallible Word of God. And if you're here today and you're new to church and maybe you're not sure about that claim and you don't think that this is the inspired Word of God, maybe you think it's just a collection of fairy tales and stories recorded by men over the centuries, I would encourage you to do your research and your homework because there are atheist and agnostic scholars that would even attest to the fact that there is not another document on the planet quite like this document. The collection of 66 books contained in this book and the historical accuracy of them has been attested to and proved over and over again by extra 
extra biblical accounts as well. And so do your research and do your homework, but I just want you to understand the basis from which that I'm coming from and that we're going to use this book to build a case to explain what salvation is and what it means. It's important for us to know what you believe and why, and my hope and my prayer is that today every single person will leave knowing the answers to these questions. So let me start off with a passage of Scripture this morning that kind of highlights the reason why there is so much confusion. It's important to lay the foundation, the very beginning of this series, that we understand that Jesus is the author of truth and the devil is the author of confusion and lies. And if you're here today and you're not convinced that Jesus is who he said he is and would question my statement that Jesus is the author of truth, then I would simply encourage you once again to maybe go back and listen to a series that I preached back in April called The Case for Christ, where we presented the argument that Jesus is truly is, is truly who he said he claimed to be. You can go onto our website, lifechurchbuffalo.com, go onto the media page and find the podcasts, scroll back to April and you'll find that. It's The Case for Christ. But this passage of Scripture I'm about to read kind of highlights why there's confusion, because Jesus is talking to some people in John chapter 8 uh, that were following him, and he says this to the Jews who had believed him in verse 31, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's my prayer for you today, that you would know the truth about salvation and that it would set you free. And we also know that truth is not a concept. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. Because Jesus also said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then a few verses later, he continues on in that same passage in verse 43. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus does not want you to be confused. Satan does. Satan wants us to live in confusion. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus wants us to live in clarity. Now, I have a confession to make to you guys today. I don't know if you grew up uh, in traditions like this, but I have a tendency to talk to the devil. I don't even know if that's really theologically accurate or not, but um, when things are happening in my life that feel like an attack from him, I start getting vocal in my prayers and I start telling the devil what's up. I tell Satan, you shut up. You shut your pie hole, Satan. You know, because I don't know about you guys, but there are times where, you know, he says some things to me that make me begin to doubt and question my own salvation. Like just the other day, I was driving down the road and somebody cut me off and I almost flipped them off. And, and, and it's like, am I really a Christian? I, I got to preach to my people at Life Church Buffalo this Sunday and, and I just said a bad word about that person. And the devil comes and whispers in my ear and said, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't say things like that. Come on, is there anybody else here that's willing to be honest and has felt or thought the same thing? So I just reply and say, you go to hell, devil. And some of you are like, ooh, the pastor just swore. No, I'm quoting scripture. 
Because I don't know if you realize this, but in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says that at the end of time, God is going to cast Satan into the lake of fire. And so I'm just telling them to go there a little early. You go to hell. You can do it too. Go to hell, devil. So I want to start out with the most basic question, though. And that is this question here. What is salvation? Before we can answer any of the other questions about it, like the who, the how, the when, or the why, we have to understand what it is. This is our starting point today. This is our foundation. And like I said earlier, the way you answer this question might depend on the way you were brought up or what church you grew up in. So what is salvation? Simply put, salvation is a gift, and it's a gift like no other. I'm going to give you a working definition for salvation today. Salvation is God's plan and our hope for His glory and our good. It's God's plan and our hope for His glory and our good. Now let me just try and unpack that for you a little bit this morning. A concise definition for salvation could really be summed up in one word, and it's the word deliverance. But deliverance from what? Deliverance from the penalty of our sins, which Scripture tells us is eternal death or eternal separation from God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to write that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have all sinned. Every single person who has ever lived except for Christ has sinned. We've done wrong and we've broken God's perfect law. And the Holy Spirit is telling us here through Paul that the price for that sin that we've committed is death. It's eternal death. But God offers us a substitute. He offers us the free gift of salvation. It's God's plan and it's our hope. It's God's plan to redeem mankind from our lost and broken and sinful state and restore us to a right relationship with Him. It's God's plan. It's also our hope that a restored relationship with Him brings us the promise of eternal life. And it's also for His glory and our good. See, that restored relationship with Him brings Him glory as His followers begin to step into and walk out God's plans and purposes for their lives. And it's for our good because God doesn't want to just give us salvation. He wants to give us peace and hope and joy and love and purpose. It is for our good. It's God's plan and our hope for God's glory and our good. It's a gift like no other. So that for us today is where we're going to start off as a working definition for what salvation is. But now that we know what it is, my first question that I want to present to you today that gets asked often, who is it for? Who can be saved? Who can receive this free gift? Because a lot of people don't feel like they're worthy of salvation. God knows what I've done. He can't forgive me for the things I've done. I've hurt people. He knows I've cheated on my husband. He knows I've cheated on my wife. It can't be for me. I struggle with homosexuality. I struggle with gender identity issues. It can't be for me. I struggle with an addiction to pornography. It can't be for me. God knows what I've done. I'm on a registry for sex offenders. Can't be for me, can it? Who's it for? I was raised Muslim. 
I was born a Hindu. I'm an atheist. I've never been to church in my entire life. Who is it for? I'm going to answer that question for you right now. It's for all of us. It's for all of us because all of us have sinned. So it's for the liar, the cheater, and the murderer. It's for the bully. It's for the white supremacist and the Black Lives Matter activist. It's for the Republican and the Democrat, the conservative and the liberal. It's for the attorney. It's for the doctor. It's for the guy digging ditches and the guy on unemployment. It is for all of us. That's what makes it good news is because no one is excluded. If it wasn't for everyone, it wouldn't be good news. It's for all of us. I'm going to give you a very, probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. You see it on posters at football games and everything else. But I want you to not just dismiss this because you've seen it a thousand times, but look at the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the, the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say that God only loved a select few. It doesn't say that He only loves those who keep His law and behave just a certain way. It says He loves the whole world. Listen to me, church. I don't care who you are, where you're from, or what you've done in your life. Don't you ever believe the lie that you are not loved. God loves you. God loves you. He loves every single person on the face of this planet. Who is it for? It's for whoever. Whoever believes in Him, it says, can have salvation, can have eternal life. Let me show you another verse in case you've ever wondered if God really wants everyone to become a Christian. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some count slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God does not want a single person to die without salvation. He wants everyone to repent and be saved. Everyone. Now, just because He wants that doesn't mean everyone will be saved because we have free will. We can choose to either accept Him and receive the free gift of salvation or we can choose to reject Him. So not everyone will go to heaven, but God wants everyone to come to repentance. Scripture is clear on that. So let me give you another question that is asked a lot. Why does it matter? If it's for everyone, why does it matter so much? Why is this such a big deal? It matters because eternal life and abundant life are at stake. It matters for eternity, and it matters right here and right now. It matters because you matter. You were made in the image of your Creator, and He wants to spend eternity in heaven with you. You see, everyone lives forever. I don't know if you realize that. Everyone lives forever. But where you spend eternity depends entirely on whether or not you'll receive the free gift of salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. We just read in 2 Peter 3.9 and John 3.16 that God wants everyone to be saved and that whoever believes in Him can have eternal life. So we, we need to understand that God does not send people to hell arbitrarily. People will spend eternity forever separated from God if they reject the good news of the gospel. 
heaven and hell are real, and I don't have time to go into all of that. That's another series in and of itself. Maybe I'll preach or teach on that sometime. But it matters because eternity is at stake. Nothing could matter more. When you think about where you spend eternity, could anything be more important than that? That's why it matters. But so many people get so focused and so caught up on the eternity part of things that they miss the other part of it, which is that abundant life is at stake. Salvation matters not just because Jesus wants to spend eternity with us in the new heaven and the new earth, but because he wants a relationship with us right here and right now. He wants to give you abundant life right now on this side of eternity. I want eternal life, but eternal life is just the natural follow-up to abundant life right here and now. If the whole goal of salvation was just to go to heaven, why wouldn't we all just die the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ? There's got to be more to it than that. There's more to salvation than just going to heaven someday. He wants to give us abundant life on this side of eternity. See, I want to be the best dad I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to discover my purpose in this life. I want to experience the fullness of joy. I want everything that this life has to offer, and I can experience all of those things because of Jesus, and the abundant life of Jesus Christ is alive inside of me. I don't want to just live 80 or 100 years doing my own thing, just kind of watching the time pass, waiting for eternity to come. No, thank you. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came so that you could experience abundant life. And if your life right now doesn't look abundant or if you're not experiencing abundance, there's more available to you. That's why he came. He didn't come just so that you could barely make it through this life. He wants you to experience life to the fullest. But listen, I also believe that eternal life doesn't just mean isn't just something that we experience after we die. I believe that we begin to experience eternal life the very moment we step into relationship with Jesus Christ. Because right before Jesus was betrayed and arrested and handed over to be crucified, while praying to his Father in the garden, he said this in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus said that knowing God is eternal life. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. We can experience eternal life right now by knowing him. You don't have to wait until you die to experience eternal life. You can have it right now if you know God, if you know his son. Salvation matters because eternal life and abundant life are at stake. So here's another question that gets asked a lot. When does it happen? When is a person saved? It's an important question because, like I said, different traditions teach different things. Some churches and denominations teach that you're just kind of born into it. Some people believe that the faith of their parents is just somehow transferred down to them and they, you know, whatever their parents were, they are. Some people believe that you're saved the moment that you're christened or baptized as a baby or the moment that you go through confirmation, then you're saved. Some people believe you're saved the moment you repeat a prayer after a preacher. 
Some people believe that if I just go through this life and, and the number of good works I have on the scale outweighs the number of bad deeds, then, then I, I'm, I'm going to be good enough to get into heaven. I, I, as long as I didn't hurt too many people, I'll, I'll make it into heaven. I, I can be saved then. So I'm going to do my best to try and answer this question because I could do really a whole series, a whole sermon on each one of these questions. The amount of material and content I had as I prepared for this message was enormous. And I had to try and drill down to the most basic understanding that I want you to walk away with so that you have clarity to understand what salvation is. So salvation happens when you believe in and receive Jesus Christ. When you believe in and receive Jesus. First, we have to believe. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I like the way the New Living Translation says that verse. The same verse says it this way in the NLT. And now you Gentiles, and Gentiles, for those of you that don't know, is just a non-Jew. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was considered a Gentile. And Paul is writing to some people at a church that he planted in a city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. They weren't Jews. And he says, now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. It says the moment you believe in Christ, he receives you as his own. Salvation happens when you believe. And God puts his Holy Spirit in you as a seal. The next verse would say as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance for eternity. But the reason I said that you have to believe in and receive him is because it's not enough to simply believe. You see, Jesus' half-brother James wrote this in a letter that he wrote. He said, you say you believe there is one God? Good for you, he said. Even the demons believe this and they tremble. See, it's not enough to just believe. That's why John, Jesus' disciples, said in John 1.12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We talked about this verse during the Case for Christ series and how we can pull kind of a spiritual equation or spiritual formula out of this verse. If you remember, it's believe plus receive equals become. When you believe in Jesus and you receive the free gift of salvation that he offers, then you become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So that's when we're saved. So which brings me to the next question, which is how are we saved? Is it by keeping the rules? Is it by never smoking cigarettes or can I have an occasional cigar or pipe? Is it by never touching alcohol or am I allowed to have a glass of wine occasionally for special events? What if I had sex before I was married? Does that mean I'm out? If I'm not baptized, am I not going to go to heaven? How are we saved? Is it church membership? Here's how we're saved. We're saved by God's grace and our faith when we repent and believe. God's grace saves us, not our good deeds. God's grace saves us, but our faith must be activated. Both are necessary, and our faith is activated when we repent and believe. 
The Apostle Paul wrote this again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And even this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. The faith that you have to believe in Him doesn't come from you. God gives it to you as a gift. And it's not by works so that no one can boast. No one can work their way into heaven. No one can be good enough to make it into heaven or to be saved. It's by grace you're saved through faith. So it's not perfect church attendance that saves you. It's not tithing 10% of your income to the church that saves you. It's not even repeating a prayer after a preacher that saves you, even if that preacher is me. And I know that's a little funny, but I want to pause here for a second because some of you might be wondering, well, then why do you almost every single week pray a prayer at the end of your message for people to receive Christ if that's not what saves them? I do that because I need you to understand the prayer is not what saves you. Jesus saves you. The prayer simply connects you to Jesus. The prayer is what activates your faith. I do the prayer because of what Paul said to the Romans in his letter to them when he wrote that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, but it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, that's why I encourage people every weekend to pray with me to receive Christ because it activates their faith. In your heart, you believe in him and are justified, but there's an important role that our mouth plays with confessing and professing our faith that we believe he is Lord. By grace, through faith, when we repent and believe. It's not the prayer that saves people. Jesus saves. Only Jesus can save. But before I move on to the next question, I want to briefly touch on the role of repentance when it comes to our salvation. Because I said, again, it's by God's grace and our faith when we repent and believe. I already showed you in 2 Peter 3.9 when Peter said that God wants everyone to come to repentance. And even Jesus, when he started his ministry in Mark 1.15, said the kingdom of heaven has come near you. Repent and believe the good news. But repent from what? What does repentance mean? What does it mean to repent? In the Bible, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. And it means to change one's mind. So to repent in relation to salvation is to change your mind in regard to Jesus Christ. See, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he concludes his remarks to them by calling for them to repent and be saved. But repent from what? He's calling the people who had rejected Jesus to change their mind about who he is and what he had done and to recognize that he is indeed Christ and Lord. Peter is calling on people to change their minds from rejection of Christ to faith in Christ as Messiah and Lord and Savior. So biblical repentance then, in relation to salvation, is changing your mind from rejection of Christ to faith in Christ. That's what biblical repentance means. But repentance and faith can be kind of viewed or seen as two sides of the same coin. Because one cannot truly believe unless he repents, and one cannot repent unless he believes. And so it's impossible to place your faith 
and Jesus Christ as Savior without first changing your mind about who He is and what He's done for you. So whether it's repentance from willful rejection or repentance from ignorance or disinterest, we are changing our minds about Jesus and what He did for us. But the Bible also tells us that true repentance will result in a change of actions, which is why John the Baptist called for people to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3.8. And why Paul preached that people should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds, Acts 26.20. So the full biblical definition for repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And while repentance does mean to change one's mind, it also includes with it a sense of hatred for and sorrow for sin, because our sin causes death. See, even in the Old Testament, the first piece of furniture that you would encounter in the tabernacle, which was the place of their worship, and eventually the temple, once it was built, was the brazen altar. It was the, the place where the priests would sacrifice the animals to make atonement for the people's sins. You couldn't get to worship God. You couldn't get to the presence of God without first coming face to face with what it cost to pay the price for your sin. It was bloody and it was messy. They killed lots and lots of animals because without the shedding of blood, there couldn't be remission or forgiveness of sins. And really what this was was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us on the cross in the New Testament. He had to shed his blood to pay the price for our sin. So the way to God, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is through the atoning sacrifice for sin. We have got to go through the cross. And that's where repentance comes in play because when we see what it cost Jesus, the pain he had to endure, to make it possible for us to be restored to a relationship with Him. It should produce a godly sorrow in us that makes us hate the sin that we've committed that put Him there and makes us sorry for them. That's why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in his second letter to them, 2 Corinthians 7.10, said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. So how are we saved? By God's grace and our faith when we repent and believe. Salvation happens when our faith meets His grace as evidenced by our repentance and belief. It's not faith plus repentance that brings salvation. Rather, it is a repentant faith that brings salvation. There should be a genuine heartfelt repentance, which includes a sorrow for the sin that we've committed that placed Jesus on the cross. Which leads me to the last question in my message today, and this one gets asked a lot. How do we know we're saved? How do we know we're saved? It's an important question because there are some people who almost every week, even in this place, When I give an invitation at the end of a message, raise their hand, and it's the same people every week that raise their hands because they just got to make sure they're in. They got to make sure that they're going to make it to heaven. They got to make sure that they're saved. And there's nothing wrong with that if you want an assurance of salvation, but I want to help you understand something because there are other people who also legitimately deal with anxiety and fear 
because they don't know if they're going to die, if they're really going to make it to heaven. And so they walk around with this question and this fear in their minds. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it, Jesus, or you're going to let me in when I die. And I want to set you free today from that fear because you can know that you are saved when you hear his voice. How do you know when you're saved, especially when, when you continue to struggle with sin, even after you've prayed the prayer or you've made the decision and you begin to wonder, well, I'm still struggling. Is what I experienced really real? Am I truly saved? Because I, I keep struggling with this. You'll know you're saved when you begin to hear the Holy Spirit's voice, when you begin to hear the Father's voice. Now, I want to explain this to you because even this can cause some confusion. You're like, well, am I going to hear an audible voice? What does Jesus' voice sound like? If I don't hear his voice, am I not really saved then? I want to explain this to you. First, let me give you a verse. See, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He said, the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He's referring to himself as the shepherd here. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. Several verses later, verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus said that if you're truly his disciple, you're going to know his voice. But, but again, what does that mean? Can I just try to explain this to you? It is not, in most cases, an audible voice. There have been you know, testimonies of people hearing an audible voice. But by and large, it is an inner knowing inside your heart when God speaks to you. That's why it's so important to start reading this word because you're going to begin to know what the voice of God sounds like when you get into this word. That's why it's so important when you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ that you begin to read this because by reading this, you begin to learn about what his character is and what his nature is, and you'll begin to, to learn what his voice sounds like. One of Jesus' best friends, one of his closest disciples, John, said in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to know the voice of God, you've got to know the Word. You've got to get into this, and you've got to get this into you if you want to start to know what the voice of your heavenly father sounds like. You'll hear him tell you that he loves you. You'll hear him encourage you when you're down. You'll hear him convict you when you're wrong. Not condemn you, because there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. But he'll convict you and bring you back because he wants to be in intimate relationship with you. He doesn't want anything separating you from his presence reminds me of the time that I think I've shared with you in the past, but it stands out as one of the best examples I can give and, and, and strongest memories I have of a time when I know that I heard the voice of God. Many of you know my story and the, the day that the divorce was finalized with my first wife, I left the courtroom feeling defeated and discouraged and depressed, feeling like God's plans for my life were forfeit, that I would never be able to do anything significant or meaningful with my life. And I didn't go home because I didn't want to sit in my apartment and wallow in my misery. And so I went to the grocery store and just started wandering up and down the aisles. And I can take you to the spot in the freezer department 
in the tops on South Park Avenue in Hamburg when God stopped me in my tracks and I heard the voice of my father say, I love you, you're my son, and I still have a plan for your life. He said, I am proud of you. And I began to weep standing there in the grocery store as God knew exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. That my failures and my sins don't disqualify me from being used by him. That I was still his son and he still had a plan for my life. Some of you need to know that today. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Your father loves you and he has a plan for your life. You don't have to walk around with this question wondering, am I really saved? Am I going to make it to heaven? As John wrote in his first letter, he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's talking to Christians here. He said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may wonder if you have eternal life, so that you can question and walk around your entire life wondering if you've really made it. No, he said, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you are saved and going to heaven. Paul wrote in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself, God's Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There is an inner witness when you are a believer, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. His Spirit testifies with your spirit that you belong to Him, that you are His child. That's how you know you're saved. It's when you hear His voice, when you've got that witness inside of you. It's the same way that when Our children are born. It doesn't take long for them to know the voice of their parents. I remember when my boys were born, they weren't but a day or two old. When they'd be in the crib or Kelly would be holding them and I'd walk into the room and I'd start talking and they would turn their head to hear my voice because they knew daddy had just entered the room. And in the same way that we as humans learn the voice of our parents as spiritual sons and daughters, of our Heavenly Father, we begin to learn what His voice sounds like when we walk with Him, when we follow Him, when we read His Word, when we spend time in His presence. You get to know the voice of your Father. That's how you know you're saved. Listen, I know I gave you a lot of verses today. Normally, I don't like to include so many verses because it can get overwhelming and confusing, but my goal, my hope, and my prayer today was that this message helped bring some clarity to your understanding of what salvation is so that you can be, number one, sure of your salvation, and number two, so that you can share it with people who would ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? It says that we're supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope in season and out of season, to give a reason to anyone that would ask why we believe what we believe. Why do you have this hope? That's my goal. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Close your eyes, but open your hearts this morning. As I was praying this morning in my office, the Holy Spirit reminded me of of a prayer that Paul prayed for a church that he planted in Ephesus. We've read many verses from Ephesians today, but I just want to pray this over you, and I want you to know that as your pastor, this is my heart for you. Paul said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Then he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I said that salvation is God's plan and our hope. You have a hope in him for eternal life that you may know the hope to which he's called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God, I pray today that if there is anybody here that has struggled wondering with whether or not they are yours, I pray that your Holy Spirit would seal that right now, that you would settle that question in their spirits once and for all, that they would hear your voice speaking to them right now, saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, you're mine. But if there's anybody here today that walked in here not knowing if you belong to God, Maybe you grew up around church, but you never quite made it to the point where you could make a decision for yourself to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Today can be the day. You can leave here today knowing that you belong to Him. So if that's you here today and you want to say yes and receive the free gift of salvation that He offers you today, would you just simply lift your hands in this place? Is there anybody here that wants to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I see these hands up here. Anybody else? The Holy Spirit is drawing people to himself right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I would just ask that you pray that if anyone is here that does not know him, that they would let go of the excuses for why they haven't and just surrender their lives to him. One last chance. Anyone here? I want to receive salvation. I want to know that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. With Jesus. I want to have abundant life on this side of eternity. Would you all just pray this prayer with me together as a family? Say, Jesus, I need you. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin. I change my mind about what I've believed. And I turn towards you. I need you, Jesus. Right now, I open my heart and I receive the free gift of salvation. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me new. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come live inside of me and walk beside me Fill me with power so that I can live for you and follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Church, can we put our...